Welcome to the QAV podcast. If you're brand new, I just want to introduce the podcast a little bit so you know what you're getting yourself into. If you've listened to the show before, feel free to just fast forward a minute or two. If you're brand new, here's the deal. Uh, my name's Cameron Riley. Tony Kynaston is an old friend of mine. He's a very successful share market investor. I'm talking very, very, very successful. He's been doing it 30 years. He's one of the best in the country in terms of a private investor. Very good uh, track record over 30 years. And what this podcast is about is Tony basically teaches me everything that he knows about investing in the stock market. And you get to listen. But if you're coming into this for the first time, you'll find that this episode, the current episodes, assume a certain level of prior knowledge. We assume that you know what we're talking about, his system, his methodology, which we explain in earlier episodes. So feel free to listen if you want to get the vibe for what's going on, but some of it's not going to make much sense unless you understand what the checklist is, etc. I recommend if you're brand new, you go back and listen to uh, Season 3, Episode 1, Episode 3 and Episode 5, where we go into Tony's background and his system and his methodology in a lot more detail. And then feel free to listen to the contemporary episodes, the current episodes, you'll understand more of the context of what we're talking about. With that, let's get into today's show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and good night. Uh, what is it? Is this the Truman Show? What are we doing? How it's a you? lovely afternoon in Sydney. Oh, how are you? What's going on in your world, TK? Back off the break and just doing all the admin that got put aside last week at the moment. But no, I had a lovely break up at uh, Oxley Island near Taree. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 Great place. It's on a. It's on. A, uh, I think it's called the Manning River. Anyway, it opens up into a huge estuary before it hits the coast, and there's a couple of islands in the estuary. Yeah. And uh, this is one of them. And uh, the river flows just outside the door, and it's quite calm, but very beautiful, peaceful place. Idyllic, remote. It's just lovely. Fantastic. Getting back to market-related things, I was writing our weekly newsletter on Friday afternoon when the news hit that uh, Trump had COVID and they were throwing him into hospital. Um, what did that do to the markets? Uh, I guess the US market sort of been closed since then. It won't open up until tonight, our time. Our market seems to bounce back a little bit today, I think. Uh, for, you know, I, I did read an article, and I think in the Financial Review this morning, saying the markets have already factored in a Biden win um, so whether or not Trump's in hospital or dies or survives m might be meaningless from a market perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, look, a bit like the Hillary election, you can't really claim victory at this stage, can you, or factor in a prediction? It could go either way, I think. I think, I think people will be surprised by it. If Trump doesn't win, he'll go close. Mm, and my basic assumption wrong. has always been it's a – and like, I'm look. I'm hoping there'll be a big turnout in the states this time. But with 38 percent rusted on vote, and voter turnouts in the 60 percentile range normally, um, he's got it. You need, you need, you need. You know, if he's got 38 percent, you need 39 percent. So you've got to get 75 percent of the people to vote, and that's 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 a high benchmark for the U.S. elections. 
Mm. Well, let's see what happens. A couple of weeks out, um, as an investor, um, I, I think I know the answer to this, but how much do you yeah. worry about the results the election is going to have on your portfolio, Tony? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Although there's been research which shows that a Democrat in the White House um, is a good thing for share markets. Really? Uh, That's, yeah. That runs counterintuitive. Yeah. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Huh. Um, but yeah, no, it has been uh, over the over the last hundred years. Right. Hmm. And there's all, there's all sorts of caveats about that, about when the market tanks, uh, you know, when, when the GFC happened and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, generally a Democrat's better for the markets. Well, the GFC happened on Bush's watch. Correct. Obama came in just afterwards and had to bail the, the whole place out. But um, yeah. Well, uh, uh, as of uh, 3 p.m., Monday the 5th of October, by Brisbane time, 4 p.m. Sydney time, uh, the All Lords is up 145 points today. Uh, but, you know, it's been uh, last week and I think the last couple of weeks, the market's been up and down like a bride's nighty. So, uh, <laughs> you know, who knows what's going to happen moving forwards. Well, that's, we could say that every day, couldn't we? We expect it to go up at 10% on average over the next 100 years. That's all you can say about the market. Yeah. Well, I mean, this time last year, we were in boom territory. Um, We haven't been in boom territory for most shares this year. Tech stocks are a different kettle of fish, but uh, Mm -hmm. most stocks have been struggling um, for the last six months. Yeah, Yeah, and and hopefully things will, will regress to the mean and we'll have a good year. Next year, or a good year from now on. Yeah, we just but yeah, I think there's got it. We got it. It's it's um, the market likes certainty. The world's a bit uncertain at the moment. There's a big American election coming. There's COVID ramping up in different countries, so people are a bit shy with their money. But uh, yeah, hopefully, those things will resolve themselves and people will get confidence back. Now, I had to ask you a question uh, last week about dividends in the dummy portfolio. Um, I think we were missing some dividends in the dummy portfolio that I hadn't plugged in. And I was a little bit uh, confused about how I should calculate the value of the dividends, because when we spoke last week on the show, you advised me that I should be reflecting the franking credit as well in the portfolio. Um, but yet the way it's often reported in Stock Doctor is without that. So if I have to go mm-hmm. back and dig up some old dividends, I have to uh, manually calculate what the franking credit would be, and then I just um, throw that all in there. Is that uh, the way to do it? Well, yes, that's that's the way you can do it. Uh, I think I'm guessing the reason why Stock Doctor might leave the franking credits out is because uh, it's... It, the portfolio is probably being managed on before tax returns and the franking credits come around and, and monetize themselves to you at tax return time. And and therefore, what a lot of people do is they don't count the franking credits because they're not counting the tax that's paid. So you know, to, to be completely whole and to be completely correct, we should go through as at June 30 and work out whatever tax liabilities we incurred and then we should use the franking credits to offset that, and that would that's that would give us the complete picture for the for the portfolio. Otherwise, you can do a, the, what most people do is pre-tax, which is dividends without franking credits, and don't worry about what tax is being paid. Right in the performance numbers, yeah. 
Well, now I'm even more confused about what I should. Yeah. Do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tony. We started off. We started off using <laughs> dividends without franking credits, and that's probably the thing to keep going with. Right. So you don't worry about tax that we we're not going to record any tax against the portfolio either. Right. Okay. Well, that makes it clean. So don't worry about the franking credits. Mm-hmm. Okay. Obviously, obviously that has meaning to our listeners because it's um. It's a rebate at tax time for them, so it, it's like cash. Yeah. Sometimes it is cash if you if you don't have much to offset it against. Um, yeah, so it's certainly worthwhile taking into account if you're actually investing. But um, in, in terms of the portfolio, it's probably cleaner just to leave them out. I'm you know I'm mostly worried about just in terms of tracking our performance, how much it plays into it. You know, with the dummy portfolio, we're playing with small amounts of money. Obviously, mm-hmm. we we only started with twenty thousand capital, so you know five hundred dollars here or there in dividends is going to play a um, a big factor in what the returns on the portfolio look like. Yeah, or well, the dividends definitely will. We should definitely include the dividends for sure. Yeah, it's the franking. It's whether or not we want to go after tax or before tax, and I think we just leave it before tax. So it'll be simpler. And I think um, I think from memory, and we perhaps we should look at this. The ASX. Accumulation index doesn't include the franking credits. I think it's just the dividends. And that's right. our benchmark, isn't it? For the monthly summaries? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to um, check on the fine print with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Well, let's get into, unless you have anything, any other preamble, you want to get into the questions for this week? We've only got a handful. Yeah. No, I've got no preamble. Go, go for it. Okay. Peter Carr. New subscriber, welcome uh, to QAV Club, Peter Carr. He says, hi, Cameron and Tony, new to the podcast, loving the learning curve. I was already like a sponge trying to understand the stock market and the economy, and now I'm trying to catch up on all of your podcasts, spending four hours a day listening. I hope I'm not too late. I'm already 48. Thank you for your time. (laughs) Not too late. No, plenty of years left. Never too late, Peter. Never Uh, too late. That's right. Number Four one, hours he, a day, gosh. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's uh, wow. that's that's not good for your health, I think, Peter. <laughs> Number one, I have many questions, but one is about the complications surrounding taxation and record keeping when it comes to investing, uh, or really what Tony is doing, which is trading stocks. I understand that buying and selling frequently means that you're no longer investing as a hobby, but it becomes an income when you buy and sell so frequently. Are there particular recommendations you have about how to record your buying and selling and also whether or not there are particular accountants that are better to use regarding such activity? Uh, okay, a couple of questions there. So first of all, the, the, the ATO, the Australian Tax Office, does use terms investor or trader and they mean different things and there are definitions for both. So even though... Uh, Peter calls me a trader of stocks. As far as the ATO goes, I'm an investor. And it comes down to things like the frequency uh, and whether you have a, um, a, a plan to you know, use the income from trading stocks as, as uh, income that you live off. So it generally, generally that applies to someone who's more like a day trader. So they're, they're trading lots of stocks and then the capital gains they're basically using as the income to, to live off. 
The, the only difference between both of these things comes down to capital gains tax. So if you're a trader in terms of the ATO definition, then you don't get the capital gains tax relief, which means that every time you, you sell a stock, if you made a profit, you pay your top marginal rate uh, on that on that profit. Whereas if you're an investor, and if you, uh, that happens in the first year, but if you hold something for more than 12 months, you halve the amount of capital gains tax you have to pay. Um, so that's probably the that's that's the biggest difference. If you're a if you're a trader rather than an investor, you're also uh, you know putting putting all well I guess you're putting the costs in of doing both, but you're probably incurring more costs because you're trading more frequently. Um, things like brokerage and um, uh, you you know your systems it's probably the same actually because you're claiming both both ways, but it's more frequent if you're a trader. So I just wanted to clarify that just just so we get our terminology correct. Um, in terms of platforms and what I do for for a really long time, and it's only been in the last few years, I have been using Excel just to track my trades, and then uh, and keeping all the paperwork and then passing it on to uh, our account or my accountant to um, to do our returns. And that's been complicated over the years because we've lived overseas as well. So sometimes we've had to use accountants overseas and accountants in Australia. Uh, so we. Uh, we finished up using PricewaterhouseCoopers um, to, to do our tax returns, mainly because of that overseas complication. But I have used other tax accountants in the past. And I, I think for, for share investing, most tax accountants would be quite across all the issues and you could probably use any of them to, to do your tax returns. And when I say tax accountants, I'm thinking about you know um, your local accountant rather than say your HR blocks and I'm not saying HR block can't do it but uh, it, it might become a bit bit more complicated for them if you if you become uh, complicated in your structures or your trading um, so there's that since since um, oh gee probably in the last sort of few years we've moved away from using Excel to track all my trades and at the moment we're actually using ShareSite which has been mentioned before by by various listeners uh, ShareSite I'm using not so much to, to track things for tax time, but just to, to use their reporting systems, which is um, quicker for me to work out things like my returns for the year, my, my um, uh, CAGA, my, my compound annual growth rate returns, um, rather than uh, doing all the calculations in Excel and, and uh, fiddling with that. So I do that. I also use a, a package which ShareSite's linked with, which is called Zero, which people will probably have heard of, and that's an accounting package. And so all of the trades I do go into Zero and ShareSite. All of my bills go into Zero and ShareSite. All of my bank statements go in there, so we can track the uh, interest that's deductible, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, I think Zero is really good. It was good when we were overseas because we had a repository that the accountants in Australia could log into, I could log into overseas. Uh, we have a bookkeeper who helps out as well with all this paperwork. He could log into it um, in, in a different part of Australia and we could see you know, one version of all the paperwork and, and we could top up if things were missing. Um, on top of that, I also, when I get trades and when I get uh, bank statements, etc., and costs, uh, invoices, I print them off and keep a hard copy. So I like having backups of backups. Um, I, I 
don't expect that Zero and ShareSite would ever go down, but I don't want to take that risk. And uh, I also keep my documents uh, on the uh, iCloud as well, so it's backed up there. And from time to time, I'll do a thumb drive backup of, of my hard disk as well. So I like keeping backups of backups. Um, and, and probably the last comment to make about all of this is that uh, whatever platform you decide to use, and I know Stock Doctor has a portfolio platform as well, it's got to be flexible and it's got to be able to cater for every particular scenario that can happen. And believe me, over the years, you get new ones that come along, which sometimes these platforms can't handle. And oftentimes they'll you know, make a change and they can handle it um, after the fact. But but I'm thinking like, like say, for example, one of, the, one of the questions we have today is about Hawthorne Resources and how it's doing a capital return combined with a dividend, a special dividend. So whatever platform you're using has to be able to handle the accounting for, for that kind of unusual activity. Or like a laser gold when it merged with SSR mining, uh, and there was a ratio we had to apply to transfer our ownership from Elisa to SSR. Whatever platform you're using has to be able to do that. And that's why I liked using Excel for a long time, because I could make all those kind of finicky little transactions myself by just inserting the formula into Excel and, and keeping a track of it. Um, so, yeah, that's I think that's probably pretty much it. Um, yeah. Can I ask some questions? Uh, one, sorry. Yeah, sure. Just no. one last thing to say. Yeah. Uh, I know Phil Muscatello gets a kickback from ShareSide if people sign up. So if they <laughs> mention his name, he can, get, he can get some more income. But go ahead, ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, first of all, is Price Waterhouse getting a kickback from you mentioning them? Because uh, I don't like giving away free uh, promotion to Price Waterhouse. Yeah, you're right. No, no, yeah. no. <laughs> well, I'll edit that out later. Um, okay. Yeah, let's hit him up for some cash. Secondly, why ShareSide and not Stock Doctor? I thought you'd be uh, managing, you know, running all that through Stock Doctor. Yeah, uh, good question. Don't don't have an answer that that makes any logical sense. Uh, <laughs> I think it came about because ShareSide are linked to Zero, and we were using Zero, and it just became easier to transfer those documents into ShareSite rather than re-enter them into Stock Doctor. Right. And I think from memory, I'm, I'm, I could be wrong here, but I think from memory, way way back. When I first started using Stock Doctor, uh, I did come across one of those issues about a very sort of funky, unusual share split or capital return or whatever. And Stock Doctor took a while to have to change the program to to fix it. And this is back in the days when they'd have to send you a, a floppy disk with an upgrade to, to make changes. And I moved away and started using Excel and I just haven't gone back to it. Right. Okay. Uh, the third question was, you mentioned CAGA. Uh, should we make some red caps with CAGA? Can we have CAGA hats? <laughs> We're just QAV branded CAGA hats. You walk around with your CAGA hat and people go, what's CAGA? And you say, mm. oh, well, yeah, have a listen to this podcast. Then you'll know. Compound annual growth rate. There you go. CAGA Correct. hat. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. CAGA. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I should also say one more thing too before I forget. Um, my stockbroker also, you know, keeps at least three years worth of the of share trades on their platform, which I can download and filter very easily as well. Right. Well, that leads into Peter's next question, which is: Which web broker uh, do you use to minimise buying and selling costs? Uh, we know that you use an old school broker. Mm -hmm. 
We've had your broker on here before having a chat. Alex came on from Bailey Hughes, so Pete might want to check out that interview. It's from a couple of months ago. You can hear um, Tony's broker of 25 years chat to us about his views of the world and how he's uh, made Tony successful. And yes. <laughs> and uh, actually, that's a good that's a good hat. M M T G A, make Tony great again. <laughs> You're already great again. You don't have to be great again. again. You're great now. Yeah. Uh, I made Tony great. IMTG is what we'll get, Alex. He can wear that. And uh, in terms of low-cost brokers, um, I mean, my understanding from what you've explained in the past is you're really you're happy to pay uh, for a more traditional broker experience because you think you get value out of that. You're you're able to that they provide you with some input on decisions from time to time. If there's something mm-hmm. they think you might need to know about before you make a trade, they get you invites to the table for CEO conference calls and things like that, which you find useful. Occasionally invites to IPOs that you may not otherwise get access to. Am I missing anything here? Drinking buddies, racing buddies. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? That, that too. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, along those lines of... Uh... Uh, rights um, can be. I, I can. Uh, there's a, also a thing that the ATO has. I think it's the ATO anyway, where you can have yourself de- declare the professional investor. And from memory, that means you've got assets of more than two million dollars, and it used to be, I think, an income of more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And that allows uh, my stockbroker to treat me like an institution when it comes to things like fund uh, uh, raisings, capital raisings. So right. they can also throw those uh, towards me um, when they have them. And uh, it just means that you don't have to... The If you're treated as a professional investor, then uh, you don't need to be given a, a, a full detailed PDF, which means you can do it quickly. Well, the people raising the funds can do it quickly. Mm. And uh, you know, you'll, you'll get notice of it that the funds are required in 48 hours. Do you want it to take up or not? And that's been that's been some profitable trades in the past, so that's important to me. Um, but I think probably the most important thing when using a full service broker is they execute the orders. And I think Alex mentioned that you you can have the uh, you can have the case where I've, I've given orders to them in the past. I know where they've come back and said, "Are you sure you want to buy ten thousand of this?" And I really meant to buy a thousand. So you know you can you can do typos errors, which they pick up. Uh, but also to, you know, Alex spoke about they, they have experience on, you know, when the market has a, a big gap between the, the bid price and the sell price, what they do, um, you know, drip feeding into the market and the same on the sell side as well. So uh, even though I'm paying more than Comsec, I think I'm getting value for it. And the major downside of that relationship is you had to agree to name your firstborn child after <laughs> your stockbroker. Yes. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but in terms of the rest of us, uh, in terms of minimizing buying and selling costs, uh, which we want to do, we've talked about that a lot before. You want to minimize all of your fees and costs mm-hmm. because it all plays a role in what your returns are. You know, a lot of people are using online brokers. Um, I, we've never really done a survey of what our listeners use. We should do that. It might be interesting. Yeah. But I know just from chit-chat that some people use Comsec, some use Self-Wealth, um, and we talked about the, the latest entrance superhero last week and the 
pros and cons of their particular model. Um, but there's a couple that could check out. But I, I somebody else uh, suggested that I uh, actually survey our listener base to see what people use. I might do that mm, this week. That's a good idea. Yeah. Mm. Thank and you, I Peter. think also I, I'd be interested to know any sort of war stories about executing the trades themselves. You know, if someone's right. made a mistake or either, you know, did something wrong but it happened to work out for them or uh, could see that the, potentially they could have made a mistake, that would be good to know as well. That might help yeah. our listeners. Yeah. Good note. I'll make a note of that. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Tony. Uh, Zyman, new listener, uh, I have one question. Is the 18 to 90% long-term average annual return that Tony has achieved his return on invested capital or his return on equity, with the latter potentially including gains from leveraging via debt? I didn't really understand the difference between those. Yeah, so let me give you an example. Uh, if I, I started off with, say, $100,000, and then I put that in the market and say I borrowed $100,000 and I put that in the market and say I got a 20% return over the course of that year, then I've got $240,000 at the end of that year. Starting capital was two hundred. dollars What Zyman is asking is, am I taking the two forty dollars and dividing it by 200000 which is the amount I've invested, or am I taking the 240000 and dividing it by 100000 which is my equity? And the other hundred thousand was borrowings, and the, so so no, I'm taking it as the invested capital. So my return is twenty percent, um, rather than taking rather than saying it's two hundred and four two hundred and forty percent. If that makes sense, is that clear? No, completely lost. But I think what okay. you said was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's 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 the return on everything that you've invested, regardless of whether you borrowed it or you had it sitting in the bank beforehand. Correct. Yes. Okay. That's right. Hmm. That's that's right. It does include cash in the bank as well. Well, what it it's the return on your what you all the money that you've invested regardless of the source of the funds. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Simon. Jamie, old peahead, um, asks something I have noticed lately. That, by the way, that's not an insult. That's his username, peahead. I uh, just wanted to be clear, clear on that in case people thought I was just being rude. <laughs> Jamie, for whatever reason. <laughs> I thought, thought we had a question from Donald Trump then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, his head's a lot bigger than a pea. It's a pumpkin. Uh, Hi, Cam. Something I've noticed lately with my portfolio is the higher volatility than the market as a whole. Perhaps Tony may have observed this and may have thought about this himself over time. For example, market may go down 0.5 to 1% in the same day. Portfolio may go down 3%. I've noticed it particularly in the last few weeks of downward pressure. It's human nature to notice down days more, I think. Is it simply the nature of our concentrated portfolio we get less smoothing but more volatility? Hopefully this works both ways, hence the double market performance expectation. It would be good to hear Tony's thoughts and experiences on this. I've noticed the yeah. same thing. Yeah, so so being uh, different to the market is called alpha in, in terms of fund management. And we like Alpha. Elf, E Elf, E L F. We're an Elf. Or no, Alpha A- as in the. A L P H A. A L P H A. Alpha. Alpha. And, and market returns are called Beta. So 
alpha is outperforming the market. And if you think about it, if we only got the the volatility or the variability of the market, we get market performance. So in other words, if the market goes up 1% and we go up 1%, and the market goes down 1% and we go down 1%, then we get market performance. So we, we love volatility. That's what allows us to buy things cheaper and regress to the mean. Um, part of that is the fact that we only have a concentrated portfolio. And if you think about it, if we only have one stock and you know, pick any of the stocks in our portfolio, so for this new metals, which has outperformed the market a lot, it's a lot more variable than the market because it's, it's outperforming a lot. And if you look at some of the ones we sold, like Apollo Tourism and Leisure, it also had no correlation at all to the market volatility. It went down quicker than the market, and so we sold it. So, um, yes, we need we need that kind of volatility. That's how we make our money. Uh, but I, I want to just I understand what, uh, what Jamie's saying here, and I want to really just highlight the fact that I don't fear volatility. You know, and, and to also highlight the fact that volatility doesn't equal risk, and that's that's one of the f- one of the fundamental mistakes that people have made, particularly academics over the years, is to say that volatility equals risk, and they look at things like there are some academics who you know use ratios to to quote what the risk is on a portfolio. One of them is called the Sharp Ratio, and one of them is called VAR. Um, volume at risk, but they're really reporting on volatility rather than risk. And just to clarify that, if a stock is highly volatile, it means it goes up and down a lot. It could be the safest stock in the world. It just could be, for example, thinly traded. That um, They are very different things, but traditionally, particularly bankers and some fund managers and academics, use that volatility to try and measure the risk of a portfolio. And they're two very different things. And and that's, to, if, if people want to find out more about that, I'd, I'd recommend a book uh, that was written after um, a fund called the Long-Term Capital, LT, LTCM, Long-Term Capital Management, blew up in, uh, I think it was 1998, when uh, there was a uh, a meltdown in some of the emerging markets, and just trying to think what that book was called now, um, I'll just do a quick look for it. It was when called "When Genius Failed." When Genius Failed by our old friend Roger Lowenstein, who wrote "Making of an American Capitalist," the the Buffett biography. Yeah, and and what those guys did at LTCM is that they aggressively said we can take out portfolio insurance. And in other words, they, they used, um, one of them was, I think, Myron Scholes, who, you know, I think got a Nobel Prize in economics for, for um, coming up with a formula to value options. But he also uh, came up with a way of valuing the risk in a portfolio, which then the fund managers of LTCM would use to uh, take out insurance against their portfolio. But of course, he wasn't valuing risk, he was valuing volatility. And when things became really volatile, the insurance failed and the, and the fund imploded. And so I think that's, I'm, it's a long-winded answer, Cam, but there's a lot, a lot, lot, lot written about volatility and risk. And I think we have to really divorce our thinking from both of those. We want to avoid risk and we want to embrace volatility. 
Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. For the brand new folks, I want you to know that each week we have a free episode and a premium episode. Free episode runs about half an hour. Premium episode usually runs for an extra half hour to an hour, depending on how many questions we have from our audience that week, because we spend a lot of that time answering questions. Uh, If you want to check out the premium episodes, you can go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au, and sign up for the two-week free trial. You get to have a look at the premium episodes. You get to have a look at the checklist, the getting started guide, all of the video content that we have. Uh, You get invited to our VIP dinners and our VIP Zoom calls for club members. You get to ask Tony questions that we can answer. You get to get invited to our uh, Facebook group, our private Facebook group, etc., etc. And also we get a a private uh, club member newsletter each week we send out as well with some stuff in it. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au. But as I said, if you're brand new and you're trying to figure out what's going on, go back and listen to Season 3, Episodes 1, 3 and 5, 301, 303 and 305. And then you might also want to go back and listen to Season 1, as well, all of the free episodes in season one, where we go into a lot of detail about Tony's system and methodology and figure out if this is right for you, if it's something that you want to go further with, if you want to learn how to invest like Tony does, then you can check out the uh, QAV Club. Uh, the other thing I always have to say is we're not financial advisors, so don't take anything you hear on this as financial advice. This is just here to teach how one guy invests and thinks about investing. If you need financial advice or tax advice, please go see a financial advisor or tax advisor. Uh, With that, stay safe. Good luck with your investing. And we'll be back next week.